people will let you down, and so will a certain parking spot reservation service that, for now, shall remain nameless. Uh, my wife really does not like parking in D.C., and so a few years ago, when a friend asked her to meet her at a museum downtown during the week, uh, she thought it would be best to relieve her parking anxiety by booking a parking spot in a nearby garage of one of these parking services. Uh, so she made her way to the garage and uh, printed out the voucher, of course, got to have that in hand, um, and brought it with her. So she, when she pulled up the garage, uh, she was promptly told that they didn't have any parking spaces. And uh, she held out her parking voucher and showed them that they promised her that she would have a spot. Uh, they told her again, we, we don't have any spaces in this garage, you're going to have to get a refund. Uh, it was a lot like the Seinfeld episode where Jerry books a rental car um, and turns up, but they gave his car away. And Jerry, he argues with the clerk uh, about the nature of a reservation. She says, you know, uh, I know, I know what a reservation is. And he says, I don't think you do, otherwise I'd have a car. Um, and they, they go on, and then a minute, he, he, he kind of explains, you see, you know how to take a reservation. You just don't know how to hold the reservation. And really, that's the most important part of the reservation, the holding. Well, like Spot Hero or the rental car company in the Seinfeld episode, the most important part of promises is the keeping of them. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, there are times when we too struggle to keep our promises. Try as we might, we are limited, finite. Uh, things don't always work out as we had expected, or planned, or hoped. And so we forget sometimes, or we fail to keep our promises in some way. But that never happens with God. He makes promises and he keeps them. He is faithful where we are so often faithless. And that makes him our great hope. And that's what we have the privilege of thinking about together from God's word this morning. If you haven't done so, let me invite you to open your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on, I think it's the bottom of page 8 in these Bibles provided. We've been making our way through the book of Genesis, and in the opening chapters, we've seen that in, in Genesis, God created everything and everyone for his glory. He gave the first man and the first woman life, labor, and love in a beautiful garden sanctuary. And there, while enjoying communion with God, Adam and Eve, they were to exalt God's name by being fruitful and multiplying, uh, filling the earth and subduing it. But sadly, Adam and Eve, they threw it all away when they threw off God's rule by disobeying God's command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in the face of such rebellion, God did something remarkable. He promised redemption. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promised that one day he would send the seed of a woman, uh, which would be a son, who would crush the head of the serpent, thus defeating sin, Satan, and death. And the rest of the book of Genesis reveals how God is working out this promise of a seed and a son. And last week in Genesis 10 and 11, we saw the whole world rebel against God at the Tower of Babel. And in mercy, God ruined man's plans and continued his own plans of sending a son. He spotlighted a particular family line through which this Savior would come, the line of Abram. Let me just say a word now about the, what we'll encounter in our text. You can scan uh, the verses that we're going to look at today in Genesis 12. In this chapter, we hear God call Abram out of the world so that God might bless the world through Abram's offspring. God gives Abram precious promises, and Abram responds in trust and obedience. That's what we're going to see in the first nine verses or so of Genesis 12. And then, when Abram is met with a trial, you see the famine mentioned there in verse 10, he fails 
he falls short of the glory of God. He goes down to Egypt to depend upon them instead of upon God. And simply because Abram failed doesn't mean that God's promises will fail. While we never want to aim at failure in the life of faith, we should be comforted by the fact that our fears and failings will never diminish God's faithfulness or defeat God's promises. We'll see this in Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 to 20. And in this chapter as a whole, here's what we learn. God's gracious promises call for faith, but God's promises are fulfilled by His faithfulness. That's the message of Genesis 12 in a single sentence. God's gracious promises call for faith. That should be our response. But God's promises are fulfilled by His faithfulness. We're going to unpack Genesis 12 in two sections under two headings. First, God's great promises. And second, God's great faithfulness. I think there's an outline provided there in your bullets, and I hope that'll help you to follow along. Let me just urge you, beloved, as you hear this message from Genesis 12 this morning, my hope is that you will be encouraged to trust and obey God. Obey our great God. Despite your fears and failures, believe in Him, trust in Him, obey Him until He brings you all the way home. And He will do it because He who called you is faithful. Let's turn then and consider our first point, God's great promises. Follow along now as I read Genesis chapter 12, just the first three verses. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now the Lord Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, here we see one of the great commissions of the Old Testament. It's a commission of blessing and promise, but it begins with a command. You see the command to go. Yes, the God of the Bible is a God who gives commands. He commanded the sun, the moon, and the stars to take their place in the heavens. And now he commands Abram to go to his place, to the place that he will show him. This command was to go was no doubt difficult for Abram. He was being called to leave his home. Do you see that there in verse 1? Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. It's like Moses underlining this, the difficulty that Abram might have in leaving these places that he loved, the people that he loved. He was being called to go, not knowing where he was going. It's read earlier in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. But this command to go was about more than Abram's location. It was also about Abram's love. Abram had been living in Haran, a city in northern Mesopotamia. Uh, previous to that, he had been living in the Ur of the Chaldeans. And as we learned, at the end, learned about that at the end of Genesis chapter 11, really in both of these places, these locations, it was very likely that Abram and his family were dedicated to the moon god, or worshiping the moon god there. In fact, Haran was famous for its temple dedicated to the moon god. Its name was Sin. Observe this. God's gracious call and commands to Abram was to leave not only his location, but to exchange his family loyalty and love of false gods for the love of the one true God. Abram's call is nothing less than a conversion and a call to faith. Come and love me and follow me is what the Lord God is saying to Abram. Abram's call is even emblematic of the call that everyone experiences when God calls them to come to faith in Jesus Christ. The call, as we see here, begins with God. Salvation always begins with the sovereign God. Abram wasn't seeking after God, but God was seeking after Abram. 
The call comes with a clear command. Stop loving the world and start loving the God who made it. The God who made you. The command demands loyalty. Leave your old life behind. Begin your journey trusting the Lord. Friend, I wonder if you are experiencing a similar call in your life. Is the Lord God seeking and pursuing you? God may not be audibly calling out to you from heaven like he was with Abram. But is he calling to you perhaps through friends? Perhaps through family members? Perhaps through co-workers? Through them, is he calling you to consider the gracious claims of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he challenging you, calling you to give up your love of sin? And instead to give your love to him? Is he calling you to trust his loving leadership and to realign your loyalties to him? I want you to consider what the text says next there in verses 2 and 3. Because God never asks his people to give up more than what he will give them in himself. You notice this? Notice the promises that immediately follow this command. Yahweh, that's what those capital letters L-O-R-D mean in the text. That's God's covenant name. He makes relationships and keeps covenant with his people. So he reveals himself. It's the Lord God's name. Yahweh tells Abram that he will make of him a great nation. That he will give him a great blessing. And he will make him a great name. Abram will be the fountainhead of a great people. He's going to have progeny. And they will develop into a political entity. A nation. Not only that, but he's going to be prosperous. That's what those words, I will bless you, mean. Abram will enjoy great material wealth. In just a few verses, we're going to see him start collecting a whole bunch of possessions. His name will even enjoy popularity and honor among the peoples of the earth. Let's not forget where we've come from in the biblical storyline, right? We've just come from Babel. Chapter earlier, the peoples of the earth are trying to make a name for themselves. But God will do for Abram what those people try to do for themselves. Abram, God's name will build up Abram's name. I think that it's also very likely that there's kind of a royal overtone to this promise concerning the name. Uh, In time, we will see that at least one implication of making Abram's name great is the one who rules over the people of God. The children of Abram will have a great name. Great name like David, Solomon. And of course, in time, the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, we need to see in these great promises of blessing, the furthering of God's promise from back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Here we're seeing the furthering of that promise to send a seed and a son who would rescue fallen humanity from their sin. I mean, isn't it just amazing? After the whole world rebelled against God in Genesis chapter 11, that God doesn't abandon his salvation project altogether. The, the world is worthy of total ruin. They rejected God. But God in his grace forges ahead with his plan of redemption. He's a patient and loving God. Through Abram's offspring... The Messiah will come. These are great promises that the Lord is beginning to dole out. And these are really going to be the backbone of the Abrahamic covenant. It's going to be unfolded in greater detail in the chapters ahead. And the Abrahamic covenant is one of the means of God's gracious revelations to save mankind from sin. But notice that phrase toward the end of verse 2, so that you will be a blessing. You see it there? God will do all of these things so that Abram will be a blessing. Abram is blessed for the purpose of being a blessing. This is his great responsibility. And this will be the great responsibility of the nation that descends from him. Abram and the children who come from him are commissioned to make God's blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And in just a minute, we're going to see Abram setting up altars everywhere in the land that he's going to. He's going to worship the Lord 
everywhere so that everyone knows that he serves a God who makes great promises and keeps them. That's the commission of a Christian too. Beloved, your, your life as a Christian, through your life, through your lips, through your labors, through the way you love others around you, you are to make God's gracious blessings known in Jesus Christ. Everywhere you go, people ought to know who you serve, who you love, and surrendered your life to, the Savior who forgives sinners like us. Now, after this imperative command to, to go and be a blessing to Abram, God doles out three more promises. I'm going to ask you to do one thing. I'm going to give you three things. You do one, I'm going to give you three. God never asks his people to give up more than what he will give them in himself. Our God is not a God who will be outdone. You see the next three promises in verse three. God promises a great prosperity, a great protection, and a great people. Now the promises of a great prosperity, a great protection kind of go hand in hand. You see there in verse three. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors or him who curses you, I will curse. God's going to deal favorably with those who deal favorably with Abram and his children. But he will deal forcefully with those who seek to hurt and harm Abram and his children. The people standing at Mount Sinai, first receiving this book of Genesis, would have known just how committed to this promise God was. For afflicting God's people in slavery, God punished Pharaoh with ten disastrous plagues, culminating in the death of every firstborn son. In the book of Isaiah, when an Assyrian army was taunting God's people, the Lord sent an angel of death through the camp and in a single night laid waste to 185,000 people. 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is still committing to blessing those who bless his people, and he's still committed to cursing those who curse his people, those who dishonor them. So, for example, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6-9, the Bible says, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Paul's writing to Christians, telling them this, that God considers it just to do this. And a great relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer, Paul says. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Let those who do not obey the Lord God be warned. God will repay with affliction those who afflict his people. Maybe not immediately, maybe not in this life, but he will certainly do so eternally on the last day if they do not repent. Dear friend, do not oppose God. Do not oppose the people of God, or else you will face the curse of God. I mean, have you noticed all of the I wills we've seen in these verses? There are at least five of them in our English translations. God is saying over and over and over again, I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. Be certain of it. There's a divine determination latent in these promises. This is not a God to be trifled with. This is a God to be trusted and obeyed. He is especially to be trusted because of that last promise there in verse 3 of a great people. This has come true in Jesus Christ. You see the promise? In Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God was promising not just to bless the people of Israel, but all the peoples of the earth. God was forming the people of Israel, making them a womb for the Messiah, as one writer put it, 
so that the universal blessings of God's salvation would be delivered through them in Jesus Christ. But notice clearly, God's purposes of salvation are wide. They're worldwide, aren't they? They're not just for Israel, they're for all the families of the earth, all the different tribes and tongues and nations. That means they're for Gentiles too. If you are to know God's blessings of salvation, then you have to know it through the son who comes from the line of Abraham. You have to know it through Jesus. About Jesus, the Bible says, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Here is what God is promising. God will bless one nation temporally so that all the nations, Jews and Gentiles, may be spiritually and savingly blessed eternally. God blesses one nation temporally with the privilege of carrying God's purpose of redemption forward through history. So that when the fullness of time came, the Savior would secure redemption for the nations eternally. Listen to how Paul describes God's purpose in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Paul says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. You see, Abram would one day have a son, who would be the Savior of the world. And in that way, the nations, the families of the earth would be blessed through God's salvation. God always meant for his people to include Jews and Gentiles. God always meant for his people to be an ethnically diverse people. All throughout the Old Testament, uh, you see so-called foreigners joining themselves to the ancient people of God. What makes you a child of Abram, according to the Bible, is that you have faith like Abram. Listen carefully to Galatians 3, verses 7 and 9. The Bible says, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, seeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. That's a quotation of our text. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Abraham was a man of faith. He heard God's great commission. He demonstrated his faith in great obedience. This is what we see in verses 4 to 9. Follow along as I read verses 4 to 9, Genesis 12 now. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Brothers and sisters, this is the proper response to God's great promises and to God's great call. Abram obeyed. Those simple words that begin verse 4 are remarkable, aren't they? So Abram went as the Lord told him. He could have said, you know, I'm, I'm kind of old here. I'm 75. This journey sounds a little arduous and difficult. Um, my, my life is too settled. I've, I've made a home here. Uh, it will be too hard on my wife. You know, I'm not young, and she's not really young either. Uh, 
I don't really have enough information. What's the full plan here, Lord? What are we going to do when we get there? He could have come up with a thousand excuses. But the word of God is never to be excused away. When God speaks, when God commands, his people trust and obey. Let us learn from the great obedience of Father Abram's faith. Abram obeys God's word, and that's what we are to do today. We obey God's word as given to us in the Bible. To be clear, obedience is not the root of faith. It is the fruit of faith. We obey because we believe. Christian obedience is not slavery to God's law, but heartfelt submission to God's love. Why do we obey God's word? Because we know and love and trust God. As Mr. Spurgeon once said, you and I must be willing to do what God tells us, as God tells us, when God tells us, because God tells us. Are you willing to trust and obey God? What about when no one else around you does? Christian, here's the, the funny thing. Sometimes your obedience encourages, spurs on, prods the obedience of others around you. Maybe other Christians as well. Abram went as the Lord told him. And did you catch the next few words in verse 4? And Lot went with him. You keep reading in verse 5. Perhaps Abram had been evangelizing others around him too. When he leaves, he takes his wife. Always a wise decision. But he also takes all of the people and possessions that he had acquired in Haran. There in verse 5. Now, a number of scholars point out that um, it's unlikely that this, these people that go with him refer to slaves. It's unlikely that this refers to slaves. There's an ordinary Hebrew word that's translated for slaves, and that's not the word that's used here. These seem to be people who, along with Abram, are believing the promises of God. Notice Abram's age, too. He was 75 years old. You're never too old to start trusting and obeying the Lord. Uh, to the chronologically mature saints among us, Try not to say old. Um, brothers and sisters, if you've been trusting and obeying the Lord, keep going. Keep showing us the way of faithful obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. To the young, to the children, to the boys and girls here. While it's true that you're never too old to start trusting and obeying Jesus, it's also true that you are never too young to start trusting and obeying Jesus. Start following him today. Ask your parents how you can begin to trust and obey the Lord Jesus Christ today. This note about Abram's age also serves to remind us that if he's going to have children, or if he's going to have this progeny, this people, this nation, it's going to have to be by God's mighty power. Sarai, his wife, we've already been told in Genesis chapter 11, she's barren. The fulfillment of these promises is going to have to be a mighty miracle from the maker. They depend upon God, the fulfillment of these promises, not man. For now, Abram is sure of what he hopes for. He is convinced of what he cannot see, how his wife will give birth to a son. He believes God and his promises. He takes God at his word. True faith is actually suffused with anticipation and expectation. And as you can see from the end of verse 5, they're headed to the land of Canaan. Once they get there, Moses slows down and he tells us the places that Abram he travels through. He travels through Shechem and Bethel and travels toward the Negev. And as the biblical storyline is going to develop, these are going to be significant places in the history of the people of Israel. While in Canaan, the Lord God appears to Abram. 
Now, if you're kind of an avid Bible reader, if you're reading the Bible frequently, you, you tend to think this is kind of a common thing, right? He turned up and talked with Adam and Eve in the garden, talked with Noah, told him what to do. Now, now he's talking with Abram. We tend to think that these are kind of a, okay, this is what God does. He, he appears. Actually, this is a very rare thing kind of in the storyline of the Bible when God appears here. And God appears to kind of really underscore that these promises are going to come true. He appears to confirm what he already implicitly promised there in verse 1. That he would give Abram children and then give them a land. He's already promised a people. Now he's promising Abram that he would have a place. God's appearance coupled with his announcement, as I said, is underscoring the certainty of the fulfillment of this promise. God himself is present and personal and he's going to be committed to it. Notice that once again in verse 7, he speaks. To your offspring I will give this land. And what's Abram's response to this word? It's worship, isn't it? Abram's worship is word-driven. It's a response to God's word-given revelation. Worship must always be word-driven. It's why we begin our services with a scriptural call to worship. It's why our services are filled with God's word at different points along the way. It's why we devote a significant amount of time to thinking about the word in the sermon. The subjective whims of our hearts cannot be the foundation of our worship. The objective and glorious revelation of God and his word must be the foundation and fuel, really, of our worship. Abram is not doing something unique. He's doing what Noah did before him. Uh, just after God graciously saved Noah and his family from the flood, you'll remember that he built an altar, kind of an area of either raised dirt or uncut, unhewn stones to worship the Lord, to offer sacrifices and thanks and praise to God. Abram recognized God's grace to him. So after he built that first altar in Shechem, you see there he built another one in Bethel. And we, I think, can only presume that he did the same as he journeyed toward the Negev. Abram was symbolically filling the land with worship, showing that he really believed that one day that the children of his loins would fill the land and worship God there as well. Abram was believing God's great promises. He was believing those promises, even though there were, did you see it? Canaanites in the land. Abram was living in enemy territory. He was living in a land surrounded by unbelievers. He was living in a land that was possessed by pagans. But that he believed his people would one day possess that land because God said so. We need to recognize this about God's promises and their fulfillment. There is, there's time in between the promise and the fulfillment. So, say the fathers in this congregation uh, promise their children ice cream after dinner this afternoon. Well, when they make that promise there in the afternoon, those children are going to have to trust their fathers for that period of time to pass, for certain things to unfold, and then to receive the fulfillment of the promise. Uh, I should just say, maybe I shouldn't have chosen this example. Children, I am not promising on behalf of your parents ice cream later after dinner, <laughs> though I would always commend ice cream after dinner uh, if possible. Anyway, that, that's what Abram had to do in the intervening period, right? He had to trust God. He received the promise and had to keep living and trusting that God would fulfill that promise. It's what we have to do today. And indeed, in time, God brought his promises to Abram to pass. Think about the, what happened after the conquest of Canaan, right? The people of Israel, they make it through the wilderness. They enter into the promised land. God tells them to go and conquer the land. They do. And then Joshua kind of looks back. He distributes the land to the tribes. And he looks back, saying to the children of Abram, Joshua 23, verse 14, You know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God 
promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But beloved, this promise of land in Canaan, though it was received by that generation of of Joshua, this promise of land in Canaan was but a type and shadow of the true and final promise of God that his people will receive in the new heavens and the new earth. Again, as we read earlier in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, Abram himself was actually looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. A little later in that same chapter, the writer of the Hebrews says in verse 16 that the people of God, they desired a better country, that is a heavenly one. Yes, Abram the, and the ancient people of God were looking forward to receiving that earthly inheritance. But their ultimate hopes, the ultimate land that they were longing for was the land of the new heavens and the new earth. They wanted to be there with their heavenly father. Abram knew the earthly inheritance was but a down payment on the internal and heavenly inheritance. We can learn so much from Abram in this world, right? We are surrounded by Canaanites, so to speak. People who don't know the Lord. We don't yet possess our heavenly inheritance. But that doesn't mean it isn't as good as ours. After all, God promised it. We have to trust and obey and wait. Uh, That heavenly promised land is for those who believe God's word, who worship God's son, and like Abram, call upon God's name. Did you notice that at the end of verse 8? Abram called on the name of the Lord. This is a common biblical expression of faith. It's a way of saying that a person is calling upon the Lord, depending upon God, trusting him for salvation and blessing. Abram, he received a great call from the Lord there in verse 1. And now he's calling upon the name of the Lord in verse 8. Friend, I asked you earlier if God was calling out to you. But let me turn the question now around back to you. Are you calling out to the Lord? Friend, have you called out to God and confessed your sin to him, your need for salvation? Like Abram, we've all been lost in Haran. Loving our sin and swearing loyalty to it. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet in God's grace and in his mercy, the offspring of Abram has come. Jesus Christ has come, fully God and fully man. And he loved God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. He swore all of his loyalty and allegiance to God the Father and did all that God said. He obeyed his word, his call, every step of the way. He did what we're going to see in just a moment. Abram failed to do. He obeyed God. He was sinless, righteous, perfect. And yet Jesus, as our great representative, offered his life on the cross for all of those who turn from their sin and trust in him. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice, taking the punishment that was due to the wages of our working in sin. He was paid our wages in his death on the cross. And three days after his death, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating and proving to us all that his life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. And so Jesus now offers salvation to all of those who would come to him who would trust him, who would give him their love and their loyalty. Jesus calls you, friend, to turn from your sin and to trust in him. Would you answer that call today and call upon the Lord Jesus Christ in faith? Friend, if you want to know more about what it means to follow the Lord Jesus, to trust him, to serve him, I'd love to talk to you more about that after the service at the door. Talk with a friend or family member that you came here with this morning. Friends, we've considered God's great promises And in turn, how we should believe God's promises and really call upon his name in faith. Let's turn then and consider our second point. God's great faithfulness. Follow along as I read Genesis chapter 12, 
verses 10 to 20. Genesis chapter 12, beginning there in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Well, in these verses, we see Abram confronted with difficulty. We see him make a really poor decision. And we see the Lord deliver Abram out of Egypt. Now, we're going to take a look at Abram and what he is doing in these verses. There are some lessons that we need to learn from him. But as we do, we need to remember that the star of the biblical narrative is always God. Right? Yes, Abram's a hero. He ends up in the hall of faith as we've seen in Hebrews chapter 11. He really does have great faith and he really does make some foolish decisions. Abram's through his foolishness and sin, we see that he really actually brings the promises of God into harm's way. And yet, because God is faithful to his covenant commitments, because God is faithful to his promises, he rescued Abram and Sarai out of the hand of Abram's foolishness and sin and ensured God's plan of redemption and giving Abram a people and a place will come to pass. Now, after Abram's great display of faith, really in the first nine verses, his obedience, his worship in the land of Canaan, he's met with a famine. Now, friend, if you're, if you're here considering following the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to know that sometimes there are hard providences and difficulties along the way. There are famines in our lives. As we're believing and trying to trust the Lord Jesus, difficulty hits us. Eternity with Jesus is worth enduring the difficulties of this life now. But don't be mistaken. There are difficulties. Your, your best life isn't now. It's in glory with the Lord Jesus. In this life, there's difficulty, disease, decay, even death. In this life, there are famines that challenge your faith and tempt you to turn away from trusting God. That's what Abram was facing. And frankly, he failed. Has that ever happened to you? Abram's there in the promised land. The land that God swore to give him. And as soon as trouble comes his way, what does he do? Does he depend upon God? Does he go down on his knees and pray? No, he goes down to Egypt, we see here. This is a phrase that's actually going to crop up over and over again in the Bible. The people of God will be warned again and again not to go down to Egypt. 
That expression, especially in the prophets, is a way of saying, don't trust in people, prosperity, princes, and the powers that don't belong to your covenant God. Trust your covenant God. So, for example, in Isaiah chapter 30, verses 1 to 2, Isaiah says, Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Isn't that what Abram is doing here? Did he ask God for direction? Did he ask God this was a wise plan? Did he ask God for protection from the famine? Did he ask God to provide food? Did he ask or seek shelter from the sovereign God or from the shadow of Egypt? You know, a chapter later, I just read from Isaiah 30, chapter later in Isaiah, Isaiah 31, he would say this, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Beloved, when your famine strikes, when that difficulty comes into your life, whatever kind of trial it may be, what do you do? Who do you look to? Who is your first call? Do you go to the Lord and the wise counsel of his word? Do you seek out your pastors or shepherds to help you think through how how to look to the Lord and believe in this situation? Do you call a mature brother or sister in Christ and ask them, what would God have me learn or do in this situation? How can I glorify God? Do you go down on your knees and ask the Lord for direction? Trials either turn you to God or turn you away from God. When trials come, where do you turn? Now, I think this would have really hit home with the first people who were reading this book. Those people standing at Mount Sinai hearing Genesis. Remember, they had just come up out of Egypt. And do you remember when they come up out of Egypt on their journey, before they actually get to Mount Sinai, They face difficulties along the way. Water and food. And what do they say? Oh, if only we were back in Egypt. This would have hit them hearing this, I think. Whatever your Egypt is, friend, don't go down there. Whether it's drunkenness or sloth or self-pleasure or ease or money or indulgence or escapism or workaholism or whatever it is you do to get away from a trial. Whatever it is, don't go down to Egypt. I mean, do you hear the directional language that Moses is using here? Don't go down to Egypt. You're going down when you go away from the Lord. When you're descending, you're depending on someone or something other than the Lord. And if we're honest, we're a lot like Abram. We're quick to depend upon our own intellect, quick to devise a plan that depends entirely upon human resources. When trial and trouble rear their ugly head, Brothers and sisters, we have to trust God in trial. We need to have faith in the face of a famine. That doesn't mean that we will escape the trial or escape the famine or the difficulty, but it means that God will give us the grace to endure it. Remember the words of that poor, depressed, and suicidal hymn writer, William Cowper? He was right when he wrote, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Trust not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes 
will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Your famine, whatever it may be, may be bitter. But I promise you that if you trust your God through it, it will be sweet in the end. If not in this life, certainly in the life to come. Beloved, in the face of famine, trust your God. You will make it through not because of your strength, but because of God's. He will carry you through. Here's another lesson we need to learn from Abram. When you do make foolish and faithless decisions, don't make it worse by adding sin to them. Abram added deceits to his going down to Egypt. Did you see what Abram asked Sarai to do there in verse 13? He asked her to lie. He had a pretty wife. And he wanted her to pretend like they weren't married. Now, truth be told, Sarai was Abram's half-sister. So it was a half-truth at best. But I think it was J.I. Packer who once, and rightly said somewhere, uh, that a half-truth masquerading as a whole truth is a complete untruth. At this point, uh, it's interesting in the commentators, uh, they try to rescue Abram's valor by saying that he's just making up a plan to kind of delay things so he can make a deal with Egypt and get out of there. I think it's a bunch of malarkey. Uh, They're going down there to sojourn in Egypt. They're going down to settle there. No, Abram is giving up his greatest earthly gift to spare his own life. Notice the constant contrast between, in these verses, between Sarai and Abram, right? They will see you and kill me, verse 12. Let's find a way to make sure it goes well with me because of you. Let's find a way to make sure that my life is spared for your sake, verse 13. You saw Abram's fear was all about himself, how selfish and self-centered he was. Giving way to fear never bolsters your faith. Abram not only went down to Egypt, but now he is depending upon deceit to keep him safe. Never depend upon the devil's tools for safety. Brothers, men, your job is never to defend yourself and expose your wives to harm. Be on guard against self-centeredness and self-preservation. Young men, uh, boys, uh, men who are not yet married, uh, this is why you must seek to root out selfishness in your life. Uh, This is why it's so dangerous to you and to the wife and the children that the Lord may place in your care someday, if He has not already. If you allow selfishness to have a home in your heart, the habit you're feeding may one day tempt you to expose your wife or others under your care to harm, to save your own skin. And don't say that it will never happen to you. It happened to Abram, this great man of faith. It happened twice, in fact. Once here in chapter 12 and once in chapter 20. It even happened to Abram's son. Fathers, notice that you can sometimes pass down certain kinds of sins to your son and teach them about them through your own bad example. Isaac, in Genesis 26, he tried to pass off his wife as his sister, just like Abram did. Don't pile deceit on top of your bad decision of going down to Egypt. Give up everything, including your life, for your wife. That's the most manly thing that you can do. That's exactly what the Lord Jesus did. He laid down his life for his wife, his bride, the church. Jesus would sooner die and see his wife saved than see her harmed and himself unscathed. Abram has thrown his wife in the way of harm, and in doing so, he has thrown the promises of God in harm's way. He might not have thought that the promises of God to give him a seed was going to come through Sarah, but God sure did. 
And as they entered Egypt, what Abram expected to happen, happened. Right? Like Eve saw what was forbidden in the Garden of Eden, the Egyptians saw Sarah. She saw that she was attractive and beautiful to the eye. Like Eve took what was forbidden in the Garden of Eden, so the Egyptians took Sarai into Pharaoh's house. And meanwhile, Abram gets rich. The Egyptians clearly paid a bride price to Abram for Sarai. She must have been very pretty because they paid Abram a pretty penny. I mean, look at the list in verse 16. Sheep, oxen, male donkeys, plural. Male servants, plural. Female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Abram is kind of set for life, frankly. Except now he's without his wife. How will the promises of God to make him a great nation be fulfilled? Abram exchanged his wife for his well-being and wealth. Abram exchanged his greatest earthly possession for lesser possessions. He threw his wife in harm's way and the promises of a people in harm's way. But the Lord was not about to let one word of his promises fail. Don't you love verse 17? Don't you love how it opens with a contrast? All of this happened, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Now imagine being the people of Israel standing on Mount Sinai and hearing Moses tell you this story. Don't you think how like light bulbs are going off in their heads? Remember, they just experienced the Lord afflicting Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. The reason the promise is preserved is not because of Abram's faithfulness and obedience, but because of God's own commitment to his covenant promises. And this is going to happen over and over and over again in the history of Israel. Time and time again, the promise of the son and the seed is going to be endangered, endangered by the foolishness and sin of God's people. But God will intervene to preserve his promises. Beloved, your salvation does not depend upon the strength of your faith or your flawless obedience. It depends upon the strength of our God and his faithfulness to his promises. That is why it's good and right for us to sing, He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost. He will hold me fast. He's determined to keep his promises. All those who belong to him, he will keep to the very end. The Lord's plagues, they prompt Pharaoh and the Egyptians to return Sarai to Abram. They clearly recognize this is a work of your God. They call Abram out on his deceit in verse 18. They thrust them out in verse 19. Just like the people of Israel will be thrust out of Egypt after the exodus, after the plagues. The Egyptians are more honest than Abe, aren't they? Dear Christian, remember that your sin will find you out. Never give in to deception. The narrative ends on what I think is actually kind of a comical note there in verse 20. You see verse 20? And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Abram, he, he walks out of Egypt with all the possessions that they gave him for Sarah. In fact, that's what happened with the people of Israel in the Exodus. As the people of Israel were leaving their slavery in Egypt, the Egyptians were telling them to go, and they were handing the Israelites their gold. Abram's sojourn in Egypt actually prefigured what the nation as a whole would go through hundreds of years later. This would encourage the people of Israel standing on Mount Sinai that they can trust the Lord. He was faithful to Abram. He was faithful to them. He'll be faithful in their journey moving forward into the promised land. Now, we can learn here that the Lord loves to work good from our bad, but we should not presume that he will do so in every circumstance. 
This is a kind of unique, redemptive, historical moment where God is protecting his promise of sending a seed and son through Abram's line, prospering his servant, inviting him to never go down to Egypt and to always trust him. Abram's going, he's going to learn these lessons of faith over and over and over again. And so will we in our lives as brothers and sisters. What we need to remember here is that God's great faithfulness that leads to the preservation of Abram's family and the promise of redemption, we we need to remember as we conclude that in our own journey with the Lord, we may vacillate back and forth between faith and failure. Hopefully, we're growing stronger along the way and increasing in our faith. We need to remember that what keeps the people of faith from ultimately failing is the faithfulness of God. Though we are faithless, He remains faithful because He cannot deny Himself, as Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. Beloved, your God is the same God who called Abram and kept His promises of redemption safe. He's the same God who called you to Christ and He will keep you safe to the end. The God who promised Abram a home in Canaan has promised you a home in glory. He who has called you is faithful. He will surely do it. As we'll sing in just a moment. And when my task on earth is done, when by thy grace the victory's won, even death's cold wave I will not flee, since God through Jordan leadeth me. Beloved, you can trust him. Place your hand in his. He'll carry you all the way home. Not because of your faith and faithfulness, but because of his faithfulness. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for holding us in Christ, for keeping us safe. Father, we pray and ask that every heart here would hear your call and respond to it in faith and call upon your name. Father, we pray and ask that as we face difficulty in this world, trials and temptations, we ask that you would help us to trust you and follow after you all the days of our lives until you bring us hope. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.